The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. I'm Eamon Javers, in for the great Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead today. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is wheels up for Beijing. This as the Biden administration is reportedly readying new technology curbs on China. We'll look at what's at stake for American companies, the markets, and the economy. Plus, a federal ju- judge just blocked White House agencies from communicating with social media companies. We'll explain what that may mean and have a look at Meta's move to launch a rival to Twitter. And AI is changing the cybersecurity landscape. A CEO of Checkpoint Software joins us live to show how bad actors may use ChatGPT to wreak havoc on American businesses. But we begin with today's markets and Dom Chu with the numbers. Dom, it looks like things are a little soft as we wait for the Fed minutes. Soft, right? but not a whole heck of a lot. We're marginally to the downside, but it is a day where we could snap a two-day winning streak for the S&P and the Dow overall. So if you take a look, Eamon, right now at the markets, the S&P is still above that 4,400 market. We're off about one quarter of 1%, eight points to the downside, 44.47 the last trade there. We're down eight points at the lows of the session. We were actually down roughly 19 points at the highs, still down about one handle there. So keeping on that trading range so far today ahead of those Fed minutes. The Dow Industrial is off one third of 1%, 34,297 the last trade there. And the Nasdaq Composite down about one tenth of 1%, 13,796. On the macro front, there's still a lot of push and pull in the oil markets right now. But generally speaking, we got the news on Monday about the supply cuts from Russia and Saudi Arabia, part of that OPEC plus agreement. WTI crude right now is about 3% higher, $71.82. Some traders are watching this white line very closely, the 50-day average price on a moving basis, which currently sits just around $71.65. The last time that we were markedly above that 50-day moving average was back in the bulk of April. So if there is a sustained move above this white line, could that be more bullish for U.S.-based crude prices? That's something some traders are watching right now. And then Technology and communication services very much a focus. This after the Wall Street Journal reporting that the Biden administration may be looking at cloud computing restrictions for certain Chinese customers, according to sources familiar. That has some of the Amazon, Microsoft and Alphabets of the world moving on some headlines, although they were lower earlier on and now are just about fractionally higher in the session so far. Amazon up about one tenth of one percent. Microsoft a quarter of one percent of the upside and Alphabet up nearly two percent. So keep an eye on those mega cap cloud computing service-related stocks. Eamon, I will send things back over to you. Yeah, good point, Dom. Thanks there. Uh, The potential curb on China's cloud computing access is just one of the many sources of tension between the U.S. and China, and it's adding to the complexity now of Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen's trip to Beijing tomorrow. It's her first trip to China since taking office. Eunice Yoon is live in Beijing with what to expect there and the likelihood that Yellen can ease tensions between the world's two largest economies. And speaking of the economy, here at home, we'll get another big read on it with the jobs report coming out on Friday. Before that, though, investors hoping to get a read on the Fed's next move with the June minutes out at 2 p.m. today. That's less than an hour. Steve Leisman live at the Federal Reserve with what we know there and former Fed Governor Randy Krosner with what it all means for the Fed's fight against inflation. But we begin with Eunice live in Beijing. Hey, Eunice. 
Hey, Amen. Well, Secretary Yellen lands in Beijing on Thursday. In over four days, she'll be meeting with Chinese officials, including her counterpart, as well as members of the U.S. business community. There's no expectation at this time, though, for her to meet with President Xi Jinping. Now, Secretary Yellen's visit comes only weeks after Secretary of State Antony Blinken was here. Uh, This is all part of a greater effort by the Biden administration to restore constructive and functional dialogue between the two sides. Uh, The two sides have seen very little communication over the course of the past year, um, kicked off uh, especially after then-House Speaker Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan, angering Beijing. Now, the indications so far are that the Chinese are welcoming uh, Secretary Yellen here and focusing the talks and the idea of focusing the talks on the economy. uh, Day-to-day really highlighted some of the problems that we're seeing. The uh, services numbers for June um, showed that there was the worst kind of a slowdown uh, since uh, January for services from this private um, survey, uh, which really highlights the problems that they're having, even though uh, COVID curbs have been lifted. Now, Secretary Yellen is also likely to um, be speaking about some of these COVID, uh, not COVID curbs, sorry, but the export controls, because on Monday, uh, the Chinese imposed uh, export controls on um, two types of metals. They are gallium as well as germanium. And these two um, metals are used in um, electric vehicles as well as um, other electronics. So this is likely to be a very, very uh, disconcerting for both sides, and especially as China is still trying to convince uh, Secretary Yellen, as well as the U.S., that they really shouldn't be de-risking, in other words, weaning themselves off of China, since what they're doing with these export controls really seem to um, Uh, play right into the hands of many in the U.S. as well as other um, uh, countries who are worried about um, being too reliant on the Chinese economy. Eunice, you mentioned that visit that we saw from Secretary of State Antony Blinken a couple weeks back. This is really a full-court diplomatic press by the Biden administration. But do we think that this Yellen visit is going to be able to de-escalate these tensions? We saw one visit. Now we're seeing the second. What do you think the result's going to be? Well, I think it really depends on what you mean by de-escalation, because the fact that they're talking in is of itself um, a way of easing tensions. But uh, it just doesn't seem as there there are any people who really think that we're going to see a whole scale change in terms of the policies of the Chinese or the Americans. In fact, uh, while the Americans on the Chinese side, while the Americans were celebrating Independence Day, uh, the Chinese uh, president was actually hailing Iran for its inclusion in a Chinese-backed conference, which was also attended by Russian President Vladimir Putin. So uh, really tightening ties with some of America's adversaries. Eunice, thanks for that report. Late night for you in Beijing. Here at home, we'll get another big read with the jobs report coming out on Friday and investors hoping to get a good read on what the Fed might do next with the June minutes out in less than an hour. Steve Leisman is at the Federal Reserve with what to expect. Steve, what are you going to be looking for there? Well, you know, markets are hoping the minutes can shed some light on the decision at the last meeting not to hike, but to forecast two more hikes this year. Also bracing uh, aiming for that jobs report Friday. It's going to keep 
People believe in that it's going to show event the jobs will eventually slow, but it keeps defying expectations. Uh, futures markets almost fully priced in that 25 base point hike in July with an 83% probability. Traders have raised the chance of a second hike in the fall to a 38% probability, but it's still below 50%, showing still some skepticism out there in the markets. But two-thirds of the FOMC members, they do forecast two hikes, and it's hope the minutes can provide some clarity on just how hell-bent they are or if there's a sense they can be dissuaded by something like, for example, slowing payroll growth. Here's some of the things we're looking for in the minutes. Are the Fed, is the Fed data dependent? In other words, they're going to make decisions based on the data or are they forecast dependent? Are they going to follow that forecast for two more hikes? You've had pretty good rising stock prices creating a wealth effect, but you also have concerns about credit tightening from the banks. Inflation has been slowing, but has it been slowing enough to slow down the strong jobs market and get rid of the fear of inflation. Economists see a payroll gains declining to a still high 240,000 from 339 in May, but the unemployment rate dipping to 36 from 37. Dave Gilbertson of UKG, he writes, the longer we see continued strength in activity and continued tightness in hiring, the more we would expect the next surprise to include wage inflation starting to creep back up late this year into early next year. Maybe Amen June is the month that the job market finally weakens as economists expect, but the Fed's forecast for two more hikes suggest they don't necessarily believe it. Damon? Feels a little ghoulish to maybe be rooting for the job market to soften, but I get what you mean in terms of what the Fed is doing. Steve, stay right there for more on the Fed's next move. Let's bring in Randy Krosner, former Federal Reserve governor and economics professor at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. Uh, Randy, you heard Steve's preview there. What are you going to be looking for in less than an hour when we see these minutes? I think those are really the, the, the key issues because I, I think, as, as I think I've said on this, this program before, the Fed's not going to quit until the labor market quits. And so my guess is you're going to have a lot of discussion about, well, why have these lags been so long? Why aren't we seeing the, the job market turn down yet? Uh, what is the potential for high wage demands to then keep um, core prices, uh, the, the core indices on prices up, because it's core um, price indices are the ones that are much better predictors of where inflation is going. There's a lot of movement in energy prices or food prices. Those seem to be coming down. But if you look at the core numbers after stripping out the, the food and energy prices, those haven't been coming down. That has been kind of flattening out. And I think that's really going to be a key motivator for the Fed to say, Yes, we need to keep going ahead, and uh, and and I think the markets are right. They're going to go ahead with this next one, unless there's something cataclysmic with the job numbers on Friday. But Randy, there's sort of a cognitive dissonance going on here, isn't there, with the Fed? Because you've got this dual mandate, right? They they are responsible for making sure that employment is high and inflation is low. And in this case, you're looking for lower jobs numbers uh, in order to pull the put the brakes a little bit on increasing interest rates going forward and and solving the inflation battle. How can the Fed get both? of the things that it wants when they seem to be at odds with each other? Uh, that's, that's always the tough question to get that balance right. Well, right now, the unemployment rate is below where they think the long-run average is. They have the long-run average in the low fours, and uh, the unemployment rate is in the, uh, the, the threes. So they could have the unemployment rate move up, and that's still consistent with their, uh, their broad mandate to uh, maximize employment growth, but it's consistent with low and stable inflation. And man, inflation has not been low and it's not been stable. So they, yeah. uh, they're they really missing so much on one of the, the two goals that they need to make that the priority. And that's what, uh, what Jay Powell has been talking about for the last year. And that's why they've driven interest rates up at near record pace. 
Steve, you want to jump in here too, right? Yeah, I think it's well to remember the paper we talked about a couple weeks ago from former Fed Chair Ben Bernanke and IMF Chief Economist Olivia Bonchard. They had said that the labor was not a big part of the reason for inflation to this point. But they said that could be yet to come. So I was wanted yes. to respond to what Randy was saying, which is very important that we really haven't experienced wage push inflation. But it's the fear of it that I think is, is as other factors in inflation recede, it may be that we're left with some form of wage push inflation. And it's hard to divorce this conversation from some of the the, the uh, tension going on in the uh, uh, union with unions and with with uh, uh, employers right now. The, the unions and to my mind, act like they have a tight labor market behind them and that the employers have to negotiate here. So that's, I think, another sign of how tight the labor market is. And I would layer on top of that some of the high-frequency data that I've been looking at, which also seems to show that we still could be headed for a strong jobs report on Friday. Yeah, Randy, react to that. I mean, you're a former Fed, Fed governor. You know, you've been in rooms where these kind of things are discussed. Is the fear of high wages still out there, or is that sort of a psychological thing that doesn't really exist in the real world? Oh, no, well, I mean, uh, the wage demands come from people's expectations, and those are yeah. their beliefs about where things are and where things are going. I mean, part of it is the real wages, that is the inflation-adjusted wages, have been terrible over the last year or so. Inflation has been much higher than the wage growth. Nominal wage growth has been high compared to where it used to be, but inflation has been three, four, or five times what it used to be. So what may be happening is that people say, well, you know, I didn't quite get enough last year. And sure, inflation is coming down, but I got to make up for what I didn't get last year. And so even if inflation does come down from the four to five percent range that we're in down to, let's say, even two to three percent, they still may be asking for four percent wage increases. Well, that's going to mean it's going to be really difficult to get down to those two or three percent levels. You're probably going to be persisting in like the three to four percent range because Labor mm -hmm. costs are such a large, important, uh, a large and important factor in overall costs, particularly in the services area, but even in manufacturing. Hey, Steve, I know hey. we've got this, these minutes coming up at the top of 2 o'clock Eastern, so I don't want to skip ahead of that too much, but we do have the jobs report coming up on Friday. Any early sense of what to expect there? <laughs> is it too early to start speculating? Well, the, it's never too early. The early, the, early, the early sense is that I did some work over the weekend um, on July 4th, just before the fireworks. God to bless take a you, look Steve. You're at, the only man how, in America who did work at, over the weekend. Crunching data on, on, on July 4th, my favorite thing to do other than watching the fireworks. <laughs> but listen, here's the thing. Economists have been so wrong over the last 13 months. They have been negative by an average of 111,000 jobs per month. And I went back two years, and economists have... Uh, under forecast the job market by 2.6 million. So you can take their 240,000 and on average add 100,000 to it. Maybe they get it right this time. Maybe it's finally weakening. But the point is that they have underestimated the jobs market for a very long time now. We'll see if it finally catches up with them. But I would just like to also correct the record, uh, Eamon. I am personally rooting for more jobs and higher wages yes. completely offset by surging productivity. And that would be a non-inflationary development. I think Randy would join me in rooting for that. That would be Surging. great. 
surging productivity, <laughs> including on the 4th of July weekend. Uh, thank you both, Randy Krosner sure. and Steve Leesman. <laughs> Appreciate uh, your time and experience. And as we're entering the second half of the year, my next guest is very bullish on the market. In fact, he just raised his year-end price target on the S&P to 4825 That's the highest on the street. Here with what makes him so optimistic is Tom Lee, co-founder, managing partner, and head of research at Fundstrat Global Advisors. He's also a CNBC contributor. Tom, you've got the most aggressive forecast out there on the S&P. I want to just ask you this before we get to the, the merits of the forecast. Do you ever feel like you're out on the le- limb a little bit when you make those forecasts and you're the most aggressive on the street? Um, yeah, all the time. I mean, yeah. it's easier for most people to stick to the middle of the fairway. That's why m- most forecasts are literally around consensus. But uh, I think this year is an example where the common perception was wrong on, on many things. You know, the idea of a recession starting and one where earnings would miss. There were a lot of people who said earnings would be like 180 this year and they're tracking 220. And I think many expected the Fed to come out swinging every time the market rallied. But this year, as you know, the Fed sort of uh, taken a slightly different approach to easing financial conditions. There's this talk of a soft landing, which we've all been discussing for so many months now. Uh, Is that sort of missing the point in the sense that what we're really looking for is just a warming economy rather than a landing economy? Uh, Yes. Or am I I mixing my metaphors too much? No, I, I, I don't think it's mixing. I, I think that coming into this year, people had very extreme views because the curve inverted and the Fed did such rapid hikes and uh, CEOs were cautious and the PMIs collapsed. So there was an expectation that we'd be entering a recession by now. I mean, it was... Right, it should have happened two months ago. Yes, and I do think it's fair to say there should be an expiration date on that view because... We now know that inverted curve could really reflect the fact that the neutral rate is still unknown and inflation's falling, so the curve should be inverted. And in terms of earnings, companies did a lot of cutting last year, so they're actually now beating and estimates are going up. That's kind of the opposite of a recession. So you think the Fed is going to see what it looks for, what it's looking for in the jobs number this week, and and how's that going to guide them through the rest of the year? Well, I mean, the Fed's got a tough job, and I'd say as long as the headline CPI year-over-year has been over four, they've had to talk tough. I think the June CPI is going to be the first time they can point to real progress because if it's 3% or 3.1, I think the market will finally give them credit that they've actually accomplished quite a lot. And from a number of hikes, I mean, even if there's two left in the year, and and I saw Steve's thing about November's like iffy, I mean, that's, you know, 50 basis points this year compared to 500 basis points of hikes last year. I mean, it's much less active pace. So if viewers are sitting here right now watching you and they're buying this bullish vision that you're selling, uh, how do they trade that? What, what stocks are you looking at to sort of benefit in the back half of the year? Um, well, I think, I think investors need to stick with FANG um, and tech because they, those are real true fundamental surprise stories and, and easing financial conditions means they can still do well. But I think cyclicals make a lot of sense because if... if Which business, ones? Well, It'd be things like industrials or yeah. airlines, um, you know, com equipment. I think consumer discretionary is showing some signs of life. So it's, I think it's what you would traditionally do if you think the, the business cycle's bottoming. Right. So if you're looking at airlines, for example, I mean, I just, I flew today, I flew earlier in the week. I mean, airlines are packed, uh, but at some point they've got to turn all that into serious profits, right? Yeah. I mean, airlines, uh, they're doing well and they've actually done a really good job of kind of managing capacity. And, you know, fuel has not been a, a headwind for them. You know, there may be customer service issues, you know, and headlines and weather. But 
in general, it's, it's fundamentally been proving to be a better business than in the past. So you like Fang, you like uh, airlines in particular. What do you stay away from? Uh, the most common trade to avoid probably is being defensive. Um, you know, defense, I hear a lot of people say they want to overweight defensive stocks like healthcare, staples, utilities. They've been awful this year. You know, they, you've, you've realized negative returns owning these things. And it's because they were expensive to start the year and they're not necessarily benefiting you if there's disinflation. I, I'd rather bet on the groups that were really hit hard by high inflation and easing inflation helps them. Tom Lee, Smart Analysis, thank you for being here. Good to see you in person. Yep, good to Appreciate see you. Appreciate your time. Coming up, Mark Zuckerberg throwing down the gauntlet with the launch of Threads. We'll look ahead to the Twitter rival's highly anticipated debut tomorrow as MetaShares hit a new 52-week high. But first, a new ruling restricting White House officials from contacting social media companies. We'll look at the implications for misinformation and the fallout for the firms involved. The exchange is back right after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. And welcome back to The Exchange. A federal judge putting limits on the Biden administration's contact with social media companies after ruling efforts to combat false or misleading information is a form of censorship. The order comes after the attorneys general of Louisiana, Missouri, sued the federal government in 2022 for going too far in its effort to fight COVID-19 disinformation. Meta, the parent company of Facebook and Instagram, and Alphabet, the parent company of YouTube, higher in today's session so far. So joining me now with more on the ruling is NBC News and MSNBC legal analyst Danny Savalos. Uh, Danny, first of all, good to see you in person. Thanks for coming over. Uh, I'm looking at this ruling and I want to understand the logic behind it. Can you explain that? Yeah, in addition to the plaintiff states, there were also plaintiff individuals who alleged that the federal government, including the White House, including the CDC, the Surgeon General, engaged in a suppression campaign by contacting uh, social media companies like Facebook and Twi- Twitter and essentially coercing them into taking down the plaintiff's speech, which included things about uh, COVID-19, vaccines, uh, election integrity, generally, according to the opinion, conservative-leaning speech. Now, immediately, the thing that jumps out is the fact that if anyone, you might say that if anyone had their free speech uh, curtailed, it was the social media companies and not the plaintiffs directly. But the court says, essentially, because the government engaged in this kind of coercion, uh, that it is potentially a First Amendment violation. Is the argument here that because the government is so powerful, the White House itself so powerful, that even contacting these social media companies to discuss these kinds of things, even if they don't issue any kind of an order or anything phrased as an order, just that contact could be sort of bullying on First Amendment grounds? Yes to that contact. But in addition, the opinion notes that the government contacted these companies, just like you or I might, to ask them to take something down. But when you and I do it, they might crumple it up and throw it away. When the White House calls, 
people listen, not just social media companies, but everybody answers right. that call. So they took meetings with them. They had email exchanges. But beyond that, when the White House and other government agencies didn't get what they wanted, according to the opinion, they made some not so subtle threats like we're going to have to look at this really closely. We're going to have to look at your immunity under Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. Hmm, maybe we'll have an antitrust meeting. This is something we really need to take a look at. Now, uh, I'm paraphrasing, but yeah. what the court concluded is that making those statements uh, went a step too far. We can expect the, the White bullying. House will contact these companies, but to then say, when we're not getting what we want, therefore we might bring the might of the U.S. government against you, that goes too far. So we see some of these social media companies rallying on the news uh, in the wake of that decision, but I'm wondering what's likely to happen on the legal front next. I, I would imagine the Biden administration is going to be sure to appeal this. They will definitely appeal because these are issues of law that an appeals court might take a fresh look at, uh, particularly the First Amendment issues. Those are always something that would be interesting to an appellate court, which in this case would be a circuit court. But we might see this make its way all the way up to the Supreme Court because of the First Amendment issues involved. And in particular, if I were to target one thing, it would be the idea that simply because the White House makes contact with a company, are they coercing that company to uh, suppress speech, especially when, for example, yep. what if Facebook and Twitter might have done it on their own? Very short prediction here. If it goes to the Supreme Court, it's a 6-3 conservative court. How does that court handle this decision? You think that the, de the decision stands? I am a betting man, and I will bet that this Supreme Court will rule consistently if it gets to the Supreme Court with this district court's, I think it was 150-page opinion. So whether you agree with it or not, it's reasoned, plenty well-reasoned. So this could stand. Danny Savalas, thank you so much. Really appreciate your insight here. Uh, meantime, MetaShare is hitting a new 52-week high ahead of tomorrow's launch of the company's Twitter rival. Julia Borson is here and has the details. Hey, Julia. That's right. MetaShare is up about 3%, more than 3% on optimism that it can use Instagram's reach to 2 billion plus users to quickly scale a new app to draw new users and potentially add dollars from Twitter and others. Now, if this works, it could create a new growth driver for the tech giant at a time while it's been working to cut costs. So Meta is preparing to launch this new app tomorrow called Threads. It describes it as a text-based conversation app, and it appears to look a lot like Twitter. It is designed to leverage Instagram's popularity, enabling users to quickly follow the same profiles they follow on Instagram and to use their same Instagram handles. Now, for Twitter, Meta's Threads launch comes at a time when Twitter is particularly vulnerable. Of course, this just just this past weekend, Elon Musk set limits to tweets. This comes on top of concerns about the platform's content moderation and also questions about whether or not there's sufficient demand for its new subscription service, Twitter Blue. Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg are longtime rivals, but news of Meta's Twitter alternative heated things up and sparked the challenge of a physical fight. Eamon? Julia, you know, there have been so many attempts in social media to replicate this. You've got, you know, Mastodon, you've got all these different other entities out there. And it seems to me like, you know, maybe nobody is going to capture the lightning in the bottle that Twitter had because the, the secret sauce to Twitter is that everybody's there. So everybody wants to be there to, you know, spout off their little opinions about everything and show their ham sandwich and all the little things that people do on Twitter and the big ones as well. And if there's nobody home in these new Twitter alternatives, there's no reason to be there. And so it's really hard to get them started, isn't it? It's hard to get them started, but that's why Meta has such a huge advantage. Over 2 billion people, that's 
2 billion is the, the most recent number Med has shared about usage on Instagram. So if they can get a small percentage of that 2 billion number to immediately start using this new app and to start posting because they've made it so easy for anyone on Instagram to onboard onto this new platform, then they have an advantage. It's very different to go from zero, uh, you know, zero to 60, as they say. And it's much easier if you have 2 billion users to get a percentage of them, perhaps the percentage that is also on Twitter to switch over. Of course, there are also all these other questions about whether Twitter's existing users want to pay for some of these sort of more premium services if they want to subscribe to Twitter Blue. And this is is perhaps an alternative for them. If you're frustrated with Twitter, you could switch over and try this new thing. So it'll be interesting to see how much they can really onboard that Instagram user base. And I would be very curious to know if there are any statistics showing how many of Twitter's users are also on Instagram, because that Venn diagram, that intersection will show you which people are probably going to be using this platform first. So maybe this is the one that can succeed where all the, can succeed where all the others maybe. have failed or at least failed I, so I, far? Yeah. They all certainly right. have a better shot at anyone starting from scratch. And there is a very handy article on CNBC.com explaining how to sign up for this new thread service. It's surprisingly easy. Uh, even I can do it. I just did it. Uh, Julia, thank you. And coming up, we'll dig into that report of the White House restricting cloud computing access to China, the fallout for some of the biggest companies here at home. The Exchange, coming right back after this. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome back to The Exchange. I'm Tyler Matheson with your CNBC News update. The U.S. Navy says it stopped Iran from seizing two oil tankers in international waters today. Military officials say they believe the Iranians planned to board the ships and seize the oil, which was headed to the U.S. In the second case, the Navy says Iran fired small arms rounds at the tanker, but no one was hurt. The tankers were off the coast of Oman. President Biden to host Sweden's prime minister at the White House today, a show of solidarity as the U.S. presses for the country's entry into NATO. Both Sweden and its neighbor Finland applied for NATO membership after they ended their long-standing policy of military non-alignment when Russia invaded Ukraine. And the suspended Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton is not planning to testify at his impeachment trial. His lawyer said in a statement the Republican AG would not dignify, quote, the illegal House action by going under oath. He went on to call the articles of impeachment meritless. The GOP-controlled Texas House impeached Paxton, a Republican, on charges of breaking the law, abusing his office, accepting bribes, and obstructing justice. Eamon, that's a lot of counts. Back to you. <laughs> that is a lot of counts. Thanks, Tyler. And still ahead, a new report highlights the historic underinvestment in historically black colleges and universities. But could last week's Supreme Court decision to effectively end affirmative action turn the tide? That's coming up next. 
And welcome back to The Exchange. The racial wage gap in America is finally starting to shrink, but the difference is still enormous. According to the Economic Policy Institute, black workers still make 21 percent less than white workers. This comes as the Supreme Court strikes down affirmative action, saying college and universities can no longer make race a key factor in admissions decisions. And Goldman Sachs just out with a new report highlighting the historic underinvestment in historically black colleges and universities. So for more on how the headwinds and the solutions to closing the wage gap. Let's bring in the author of that report, Giselle George-Joseph. She's chief operating officer of the Global Investment Research Division at Goldman Sachs, along with our very own Sharon Epperson. Uh, Giselle, let's start with you, if we could, and, and just tell me what you found in this report. Thank you so much for having me, first of all. So we decided that we wanted to deep dive into just the importance, the the um, historical importance of historically black colleges and universities in the United States of America. And what we found were three really important takeaways. One, we thought we found that uh, black schools, HBCUs, really um, advanced social mobility for black students at almost twice the rate as non-minority uh, serving institutions. Twice the rate. Twice the rate, which is you know, pretty phenomenal. And obviously we've seen a lot of progress over time in the education of black Americans, um, especially black women, but the gap between white Americans and black Americans is still pretty broad. And so that is really essential. Number two, and, and really important, HBCUs were created you know, in, in prior to 1964, that's kind of the federal designation for what an HBCU is. And they have a long history and have been very diligent in keeping on mission in educating black Americans. We can go as you know, far back to Thurgood Marshall, Martin Luther King Jr., currently you know, Kamala Harris, or our current vice president. So there's a long history of HBCUs really focused on empowering and equalizing the positions of black Americans. And number three, which is pretty significant, it is that HBCUs create a safe environment for black students and for low-income Americans to be able to go to school. If you look back to 2019, we look at the, the data around sort of race-based uh, or, or hate-based crime on campus, 60% of that is driven by race which is pretty phenomenal in this day and age, right? And so creating an environment where black Americans and low-income kids feel like they can go to a school and feel safe is really important. And, and one other uh, just stat I want to highlight, yeah. HBCUs make up 2.5% of the schools in the U.S. They educate over 9% of black Americans. 13% of the, the actual undergraduate degrees um, that are conferred on black Americans really come from HBCUs. Uh, over 20% of STEM degrees come from HBCUs for black Americans every year. And very importantly, HBCUs continue to really provide a lot of pipeline to medical schools. And that's really important because you also see a huge healthcare gap with the black American population. And we know from the data that minority physicians tend to service sort of low income neighborhoods more. So that sets up the importance of the HSP, H HBCUs. HBCUs, <laughs> thank you. Uh, but Sharon, walk us through the context here in the wake of this Supreme Court decision, right? I mean, we saw them strike down affirmative action. What does that mean for this group of colleges? Well, I think it means a lot for all colleges and universities, and the impact on diversity is going to be significant. If you look at what 
Howard University has said in, in its statement, the decision will not only have a devastating impact on the diversity of colleges and universities across the country, but will also decrease access to higher education for students. But that said, because of the statistics that were just outlined in terms of the small number of colleges that are HBCUs in this country, but the disproportionate number of graduates getting bachelor's degrees, STEM degrees, and medical degrees, there may, may be more of a focus on HBCUs for very talented students looking to where they want to go for higher education. So the president of Delaware State University made that point, saying that more students of color who might have chosen to apply to a predominantly white institution will now apply to and attend a HBCU in instead. So is that sort of the uh, you know, unintended consequence of this, is a silver lining for these colleges where they're going to have a broader applicant pool and maybe a higher skilled applicant pool coming in? It could be, but keep in mind that many students are going for further education. And as they're looking broadly to graduate programs, again, this decision is going to have an adverse effect on black students pursuing those advanced degrees. Right. So there are other it's not just the undergraduate presidents level. making that point. Absolutely. So Giselle, if you can, maybe it's too early. We're all sort of sorting through the implications of this decision just happened within the past week. Uh, but if you can sort of filter through what happens as we go through the undergraduate level, then to the graduate level that Sharon's talking about, and then out into the workforce, how do you see the echoes of this decision playing out in the years to come? Well, one of the one of the key tenets of our inclusive growth research at Goldman Sachs is that if we are able to sort of address some of the the racial disparities that we see in the in the economy, that that is not just the fair thing to do. It's not just the right thing to do, but it's good for business and it's good for the economy. And we want that equity. We should want that equality. Uh, at Goldman, we say we want an economy that's working for everybody. And so that, I think, is is um, one of the, the focus areas of the research is just the importance of the investment in these organizations, right, in, in these institutions that we see in the research has been historic historically underfunded for many, many years. So that's a huge focus for us. So what's your advice then to employers who are going to be looking a couple of years out at a very shifting landscape in terms of who's graduating from these elite schools? What should employers do? So I, I would say three things. One is that you want to make aspirational goals for hiring from these institutions, right? And so make it public, put it out there. When, when, when these things are sort of out in the public, I think people are more accountable to those numbers. Number two is um, really focusing on creating pathways within your organization. So at Goldman, for example, and Sharon and I were just talking about this, we have a program called HBCU Possibilities, Market Madness. And every year we bring in, and we started this three years ago, and look, post sort of George Floyd, the rise of Black Lives Matter movement, the pandemic, we've had more focus on uh, these institutions, I think, than we've had in the past. But at Goldman, we bring in these um, students, 150 students from 12 HBCUs. We teach them financial concepts over the course of six months. We teach them soft skills. We teach them about finance. We teach them, you know, just sort of the full scope. And then at the end, we have them present to our very senior leaders. David Solomon, our CEO, is involved in this. Mm -hmm. John Rogers, who is our chief of staff. Jan Haxias, who is our chief economist and head of research. All of these senior leaders take a stake in helping to educate, familiarize, uh, you know, this, this population. Um, Great to see 
the top yeah. people. It's fantastic, fantastic commitment. And it's it's similar to what we have at Comcast, NBC Universal, and NBC News Group in having our NBCU Academy, 45 academic partners, many of them HBCUs, providing a pipeline on campus education and training, and getting to meet you and other people in the organization to find out how to do the job. So More I think that the senior people in the exactly well everybody yes. you know so that people understand what jobs it takes to get there, um, and also hear from the leaders. But it takes investment from the top to yeah, really make sure these things happen. Fascinating conversation, very important. Thank you both for being here. Really appreciate Giselle, George, Joseph, and our own Sharon Epperson. Appreciate that. And still ahead, more on the president's reported plan to limit China's access to cloud services and the potential impact on two of the biggest players, Amazon and Microsoft. That's coming up next. Welcome back. Big name cloud providers like Amazon and Microsoft could be hit if the president rolls out a plan to block cloud companies from servicing Chinese companies, as reported in The Wall Street Journal. That's the focus. You saw the graphic of today's tech check with Deirdre Bosa. Hey there, Dean. Eamon, the export ban on chips, it just hasn't been all that successful because Chinese companies have found loopholes like using unlisted subsidiaries to buy them or renting access to high-end chips. So now the journal reporting that the Biden administration will restrict Chinese access to U.S. cloud providers. And this is really a way to block access, again, to advanced AI chips. It's a bit convoluted. Bear with me. Big cloud players like Amazon, Microsoft, Google, they buy high-end AI chips for their own infrastructure to improve the performance and efficiency for their customers' AI workloads, which is, of course, increasing in this era of generative AI. Customers then get the benefit of that compute power by renting space on the cloud. They don't have to buy the chips themselves. So you cut off access to as cloud companies and you eliminate another access path to advanced chips for Chinese players. That could, however, hurt U.S. cloud companies like Amazon that has a ton of Chinese customers in manufacturing, retail, media, gaming, and beyond. Microsoft's Azure could be hurt as well. It also has a significant China business. Both of them have websites devoted to winning over some of that business for their cloud units. Chinese companies, if they can't go to Amazon or Microsoft or Google, they may look to domestic cloud players like Alibaba, which is a huge player globally as well. Alibaba doesn't have the same access to AI chips because of that export ban. But again, amen, they can find workarounds, which is what many Chinese companies have been doing, like buying through third party sellers. So you know this well. It starts to look a lot like whack-a-mole. They find loopholes. Government puts another sort of restriction in place. They find a way around it. It all raises the question of, you know, where does this end? Does this just ratchet up tensions, bilateral tensions between the two? Yeah, and in the short term, you do wonder whether the Chinese cloud firms can figure it out, given their lack to access to some of the key infrastructure components that they're going to need there. Thanks, Deirdre Bosa, for that report. Still ahead, my next guest says, we have entered the fifth generation of cyber attacks. And he says, they are the most dangerous cyber attacks. The CEO of Checkpoint Software joins us next with what he's seeing and what his company is doing to mitigate risk. The Exchange, back in two minutes. And welcome back to The Exchange. The surge in new AI technology driving a big market rally this year as investors watch the development of remarkable new technologies. But the dark side of this AI revolution is a potential serious threat. Ransomware attacks are up 20% from last year, according to Checkpoint Software, as companies contend with more sophisticated threat actors using AI in nefarious ways. So for more on this, I'm joined by Gil Shved, Checkpoint Software CEO. And Gil, I read some of your research earlier this morning. I was surprised by this 20% number because the narrative in cyber last year was that the Ukraine invasion by Russia was going to take a lot of Russian and Ukrainian hackers off the grid. They were going to be distracted, employed otherwise, and 
and not able to participate in the ransomware economy. But you are saying they have bounced back or at least others have filled the gap, right? Absolutely. First, they've bounced back and we have hackers from all over the world. It's not just Russia. Yeah. So when you look at that 20 percent increase, what's driving it? Is it the AI technology or is there something else out there uh, that's really motivating these folks? I think it's the fact that uh, there is a lot of stake on the Internet. The attacks are becoming more sophisticated. They are becoming bigger and even the financial stakes are much, much bigger. You know, five years ago, a ransomware was a few hundred dollars. Today, we see ransomware attack of $4 million and $14 million. And that's, and that's the norm, not even against national infrastructure, but against mid-sized companies. That, uh, and we can't uh, stop companies from paying it, can we? I mean, there's this debate over and over in ransomware is if you stop paying the ransom, you're going to stop the financial incentive for people to do this. But again and again, companies make the decision that they have to pay. First, not everybody pays. I think big, big majority of companies don't pay. Second, I think sometimes when your business is down and gone and what uh, kind of between you and running a business is paying ransom, I'm not here to judge that. Let's put it that way. I'm here yeah. to... Kind of, we are here to explain how to avoid that rather than how to uh, deal with the damages. Well, let's talk about the way that AI could impact uh, this kind of problem, because you look at ransomware and, and you, you don't have to be super sophisticated to conduct a ransomware attack, but you do have to know what you're doing a little bit. I wonder if AI and things like ChatGPT and GPT-4 open up the world for even less sophisticated attackers to get in and they don't have to code it themselves. They can just get AI to write the malware for them and they can launch it uh, with the push of a button. You're absolutely right. AI lowers the bar to creating a ransomware or malware in general to have very basic skills. Um, it takes some skills anyways. And by the way, the companies like OpenAI do put filters that prevent it from creating malware. But we've seen and we published some research we saw how you can overcome these limitations and still trick it to uh, still give you some uh, malware, and that uh, makes it uh, easier to participate in are you, that. Uh, are, you seeing that AI, are you seeing AI written malware out in the real world now, or is this just theoretical? No, no, it's not theoretical. We've seen real malware that was written by AI that exploited these tools and uh, created the uh, real attacks, and some of them even quite sophisticated attacks. Some of them even used the unknown uh, zero-day uh, risks. So when you look at AI, the potential is there for the attackers, but also presumably defenders can do something with AI to benefit themselves. How does that work? Yeah, absolutely. First, I think we are using today, for example, we have today 75 engines on our cloud that prevent attacks. Over half of them, over 40 of them are already based on AI. So AI enables us, the defenders, to come up with more sophisticated uh, technologies and much, much faster. So that works for our benefit as well. On either the offensive side or the defensive side, have you seen AI doing something that surprised you? You know, uh, coming to a solution that, you know, a human programmer or somebody that you know wouldn't have necessarily come to? Um, I think it's still in the early days, but yes, we are seeing AI quite sophisticated and um, and I think the threat is there. We are, the, by the way, the way that we have a very interesting research that shows that the way to trick the AI engine to write malware is actually to talk to its ego. And that behavior Talk to its amazing. ego? Yeah. Kind of trick them like you're tricking a kid. Well, you can't do that and then they do it for you. I can't believe that AI machines have egos. Gil Schved, thank you so much for your insight there. Alarming stuff on cybersecurity. That does it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. 
Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.